Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first to Spartan Grown. Nice, Jack. Uh, cheers, everybody. Good to be back for another week of fun shit. And <laughs> cheers, Chad. I have to put, I don't even have Chad pulled up yet. I'm way behind. I'm still pulling out weed to smoke. It's, uh, I'm way behind, but I'll catch up. But uh, I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram only, my only social media. Instagram, Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. And um, if you don't have an Instagram, you can always shoot me an email, SpartanGrown at gmail.com. I can help with both. Uh, I was going to say commercial, but I, I can help with commercial too. But I can help with both <laughs> synthetic and organic cultivation. Good stuff. And I think uh, I'm going to lean on you a little bit for some synthetic cultivation talking a little bit later. But next up, uh, I see him. He's the first in the live chat that I could see is Dr. MJ. Welcome back, Dr. MJ. Hey, guys. Yeah, Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I am excited to be back and have another week, uh, weekly show with you guys. So grow love, everyone. Next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Hey, everyone. It's Matthew Gates. I'm an IPM specialist. And if you're interested in plant health information, that kind of stuff, you can check me out at Zenthanol.com for professional inquiries, or you can check out my YouTube channel, Zenthanol where I published a bunch of really interesting stuff about pest abatement prevention and all that kind of stuff. I'm excited about talking about the growing medium and other subjects today. All righty, next up, we've got the American one. Hello, everyone. Jack and panel, thanks for being here. It's always good to be here, chatted up with you guys and everyone in the chat. I'm the American one and uh, the American one underscore with underscore 18s on the IG. If you search the American one and a little guy with an American top hat pops up, that's me. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Happy to have you back. And this week, I figured um, sometimes it's good to go back a little bit to the basics. And this isn't like a discussion of what's best, but maybe more of a highlight of the different options available as we do get new growers and people that are constantly switching from one to the next and asking questions about the names even. Like, what's the difference between dirt and soil and living soil and no-till? Uh, versus cocoa coir is there a difference between pure cocoa and cocoa mixed with perlite versus something like a hydroponic medium uh, like dwc so to start it off based on the fact that he has an entire website revolved around it i'll pass it over to dr mj first to start us off by talking a little bit about cocoa core or cocoa coir depending on uh, who's saying it but maybe you could just describe what it is and then a few of the differences between growing in a pure cocoa versus growing in a cocoa perlite mix Sure, this is going to be an interesting conversation today. I, I, I think growing media is uh, a, an important thing to consider, and it's something that, you know, oftentimes people just settle on one and they never sort of think about it again. So whether you're a brand new grower or been growing like in a way for a while, um, it's always nice to come back and consider your roots as it were, right? Um, so yeah, cocoa. I think cocoa is a sort of well, lots of people think cocoa is a horticultural miracle media. Um, it has a number of properties that sort of make it ideally suited for cultivation, especially its water retention properties and its air to water ratio. Um, couple that with a very low cation exchange. So it's, it's largely um, inert. Um, as people who've been around a little while know that there's issues with calcium and magnesium and other double charged cations. Um, but they can be managed and 
cocoa, one of the advantages for growing in cocoa is that, you know, if it's well set up right and, and you go through a, a transplant properly, uh, you really can't overwater, at least you can't overwater easily if you have a good drainage in your system. So um, it's easy to run on automatic watering and it sort of eliminates one side of, of the balance that a lot of other media presents, which is, you know, you have to not overwater or underwater. Um, but in cocoa, you just have to worry about not underwatering. So you can water frequently. It lends itself really well to high frequency fertigation. Um, you know, one of our, our good listeners who's in the chat right now, Swamp Poker, was doing um, like 20 times a day, I think, fertigation, just really tiny amounts and, and continually kind of topping off the pots just to the point that runoff would appear. Um, and grew monster plants, monster healthy plants. Um, I've run pretty high fertigations, like uh, 12 times a day. Um, and again, just really small amounts. Now on the flip side of that, you can grow in cocoa in larger containers and, and you know, hand watering and go to once per day. Um, I definitely think that that's one of sort of the realities with growing in cocoa is it's best to, to water frequently um, and avoid serious drawbacks. Um, and that's kind of true regardless of, of how you're running your nutrition. You know, a lot of people, I, I typically think about cocoa being run with hydroponic nutrients and a drained waste setup. Um, but even if you're amending your cocoa, one of the challenges there is, is sort of the maintaining good levels of electrical conductivity in the root zone, um, access to water and access to air throughout the cycle. It's just best at like 90 to 95% saturation. So um, plan to water frequently, but you know, what that gets you is good control over your root zone conditions, good control over the EC, good control over the pH, um, good dissolved oxygen rates, um, and a healthy root zone and explosive plant growth. Um, I'm pretty firm in the belief that you can't grow plants faster than you can in well-managed cocoa. Um, you know, a lot of growers will put DWC up there and, and other hydroponic methods and say that they're faster, um, but well-managed cocoa can, can absolutely keep up with, with the fastest growing plants. I'll stop. I could keep going. I mean, I've written books on this, but I'll, I'll stop there. Unless you have specific questions, Jack, did I cover everything? The one question that you didn't touch on, um, but everything else was really good. And that would be, what is the difference between growing in pure cocoa versus growing in cocoa mixed with an aeration like perlite? I've seen yeah. like 70, 30 or 80, 20 mixes come out of a bag where people even buy pure cocoa and mix their own perlite in. Yeah, I usually buy pure cocoa and mix my own perlite in. Um, perlite, perlite helps, um, you know, depending on the plant size to container ratio, root growth and watering strategies, you don't necessarily need perlite. And certainly if you have things set up well, um, you can grow monster plants in tiny containers with pure cocoa, but adding perlite gives you, gives you more of a margin of error. It, it, it makes it a little bit easier to run. Um, so cocoa or the perlite increases the sort of the oxygen holding capability of the, the media and it 
it aids in drainage. So it makes it a little bit easier for the water to, to drain out and not sort of stay above field capacity for too long. Um, so, you know, I definitely recommend it for, for growers. Um, but certainly there's, there's examples of well set up grows um, with pure cocoa. The issues with pure cocoa is it just doesn't drain as well. Um, so it, it's going to hold on to more water. And as it holds on to that more water, the water loses its oxygen. Um, it becomes hypoxic and that's bad for root growth. This is a challenge in all media um, that, especially the media that don't drain well. So um, certainly cocoa is not as bad as like a clay or something like that, a clay heavy soil. Um, but yeah, it, it, especially in a larger container, it, it helps to add some perlite. Um, if, you're, if you're in a small enough container, that really doesn't matter. You don't need a, a ton of perlite in a small enough container. All right. Well, thank you so much for all that information. And I think next up, I'll pass it to Spartan Grown. And maybe you could give us a little bit of a understanding of the differences between, like, I hear a lot of people use the term dirt. Actually, before that, I want to give Noah the Grow a, a chance to introduce himself because he jumped in here just a few minutes late. Hey, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Grow with two E's on Instagram. You can find me there. And most days here, but yeah, go ahead. So we're talking about grow mediums and actually, Noah, you're one of the people in the past I've actually heard refer to soil as dirt. So I'm curious if you have like a general definition for dirt versus soil, Noah, and then I'll pass back to Spartan Grown and see his thoughts there too. No, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'm an old school farmer like that. I, I refer to it as dirt soil, you know, it's, but I, I, I think Doc is right. Like usual, I do think that dirt perlite helps quite a bit. I've done it with, with and without. I mean, I haven't grown in cocoa much, but I'm actually growing in a cocoa mix of peat, cocoa, perlite mix right now. And yeah, it helps with drainage, but it, it's, you know, I'm, I, I've used all kinds of different, you know, dirt, soil, whatever you want to call it. I used tappy frog. I've used ocean forest. I used to use black gold. And better draining stuff is better. So yeah, that's probably what I would say. Can I comment on the difference sort of between dirt at least and what we buy in bags as like potting soil? Um, potting soil, we, we brought this up before. It, potting soil is based on peat, which is an organic base. Um, and dirt is mineral based. It, it's, you know, sand, silt and clay. Um, so if you were to take a shovel out in your yard, you, you'd get a shovel full of primarily mineral-based elements of sand, silt, and clay. It's not going to be primarily organic-based. So peat-based medias, which most potting soils are, are technically soilless growing systems. They're not based on, uh, you know, a, a mineral-based sand, silt, and clay basis. So there's definitely a difference between like dirt per dirt's sake and like the soil that's really peat, which is what most of quote unquote soil growers grow in. It's also really popular for people to, like I'm seeing Swamp Poker describe in the chat that uh, dirt is devoid of microbes or, or certain kinds of soil life. Um, and of course, soil is not, I think that, uh, I don't know if an edaphologist would agree with that definition, you know, but uh, I do think it's important to talk about the structure 
sort of of it and also the ecology yeah I think you know, to some degree right especially in the cannabis circles that's the general kind of definition between the tool between the two you know how we try to make up our own lingo but uh yeah generally what you're saying Matthew exactly if it has a lot of soil life that's soil that's where the soil life is if it's devoid of life that's more considered dirt yeah they say dirt is dead soil is alive but I guess it all depends. I like Coco's definition, though, too. It's really like if you think about it, you know, it's we're growing in compost most of the time. <laughs> and that's really high in organic material, which is going to have a lot of life, which is soil. And then dirt, if it doesn't have a lot of organic material, it's just high in minerals like clays and sands and shit like that. Even that, um, yeah. like, like, like Dr. Coco mentioned, so, you know, just because you're buying something that says the word soil on it doesn't mean that it's going to be, I mean, it has an organic base, but um, I do like the, the point to be made that like, it doesn't, it's not necessarily, it's kind of soil lists if it's, if it's based on, um, if it's not based on sort of organics, it's a soilless medium as a, a lot of people have talked about, it. or even like some of these quote unquote super soils might not be defined really in the same way but they still use the same terminology so yeah it's important to just kind of um in some to some degree just bypass the the naming scheme altogether and just ask well what is it and then make your definition or make your sort of assessment from there about your what you're trying to accomplish right i think it's important to point out though that most of these things that we call soil are are really based on peat right um, that that's the the basis so i don't like that personally i just want to put that out there i'm not a huge fan of of uh of harvesting uh peat even if we can just supply or harvest like 0.01 or one percent of some bog somewhere um you know for those who don't know that's a super uh vulnerable environment and it's really easy to muck it all up even if we're quote-unquote harvesting ethically but what if I so, say I'm going to only use it once and then reuse it again and again and again and again? That's less yeah, impact reduce, for sure. reuse, recycle, right? Um, <laughs> that's true. That, that lessens your impact 100%. But I was going to say, what's the best alternative? Because cocoa doesn't have zero impact and, and nor does, I mean... I no, cocoa does nothing has zero impact. impact. But it, it certainly, I think, is better to harvest cocoa core than to harvest peat. I'm not even trying to, to push that. I'm thinking more of it from a horticultural angle. Like there's just differences between growing in peat and, and growing in like a sandy loam. Um, I got and, a question. Yeah. How did everybody grow plants and food and crops before we imported peat or got perlite or... Uh, in actual dirt. native yeah. soils native soils so, actually had right. not been destroyed way to, to do it like that and what so yeah there's no yeah you can absolutely actually three-eighths perlite anywhere in the soil anywhere in the world right <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think so. cool some places are a lot sandier though like if you go to it's france like where the best lavender is grown right there's different kind of textures and I, I'm assuming that like earthworms aerate the soil that was used for crops back in the day, right? Well, yeah. You know, go and, sorry, go ahead, Doc. Oh, yeah, yeah whole soil first. ecology systems. But, you know, there's organic matter mixed into a, a, a base structure that's primarily sand, silt, or clay, or some, you know, various mixtures thereof. Um, so when you're planting, like, 
farms and stuff, you're, you're really interested in the soil structure in terms of what's the percentage of sand, silt, clay, organic material, all sorts of things like that. Um, so that's just different. And, and you, you treat that differently. And, you know, every once in a while, we certainly get people to come in and be like, I just dug up some, some dirt in my yard and I'm growing in that. That's going to respond and behave differently than when you grow in a, a peat-based media. Yeah, yeah as a Californian, I can well. speak to the clay. Yeah. Yeah. All my uh, California clay brethren can just put that in the chat if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if I've had to deal with, uh, with that, you know that that can be kind of laborious. The Southeast and, uh, is similar. I mean, they have I like that red clay. clay. Myself. That's where I'm sitting on clay. Oh, yeah. Where I'm at in Ohio is the same thing. It was um, a few feet of soil, but then you'd hit really hard clay. Um, we tried to dig a hole to China as children, you know, as right. <laughs> and you only get down so far. And for us, it was about, I don't know, two and a half feet. And then it was just thick fucking clay that you were not digging through with the literally chip hole. at it like a rock and it chips away like rock. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So it, it definitely depends on where you're at. If you go to any, um, nursery and you look at the flower section, pretty much every single one, even like fruit, uh, tomatoes and other things, they almost all say like well draining soil, like good direct sunlight some of them say partial sunlight but almost every plant i've seen and there are definitely ones out there that don't follow this but most of the plants that i'd like to grow and have looked into growing want a well draining soil so whether it's perlite or volcanic pumice or some other material i think drainage or aeration is definitely very important but um spartan i remember you said you used to have like the five gallon bucket kind of set up and you've done some dwc growing in the past and uh I guess water probably is one of the most, you know, sustainable, renewable mediums. I think the water cycle, um, from what I understand, water can't really be created or destroyed. It just kind of evaporates and comes back and we could damage it with chemicals and things like that, but, uh, there's ways to purify and do things like that. But anyway, a long winded way of introducing DWC. So what's kind of your experience with DWC and give people a little, uh, backdrop on the difference, I guess, between, uh, growing in DWC versus some of the other hydroponic medium. So I found D well, just like, well, I'll just say, I don't know if everybody knows it, but a lot of people may know, gardeners may know, if you make the step from soil growing to cocoa growing, you notice that the plant grows a lot faster, especially in veg and, and everything else. And then when you do that same step into to water culture, it's just another step of, of, of fastness. You can get some, it's like driving a race car, but, but just like driving a race car, you can go into a wall pretty quick too. <laughs> Um, so what it, the basic setup is like, uh, if you picture a bucket in a bucket, uh, like a net pot in, in a bucket that's um, filled with, I tend to use hydrogen pellets because that can be reused. You can just rinse them off and reuse them. So I fill that with hydrogen pellets so that the plant has something that ho to hold it up and for the roots to hold on to. And then the roots will eventually grow through that net pot down into the, the water that you have uh, an air stone in it, usually at least an air stone to keep the oxygen in the water and uh, you feed the you just feed the nutrient directly into the water and uh, you obviously make sure your levels are right as far as nutrient level and ph and that's it um, if there's ever a problem just dump that fucking bucket put brand new good water in <laughs> it usually fixes 80 percent of your problems right there um, pretty easy but um, the downside of it is is that uh, i found 
I don't do well unless I run it in the wintertime because of the cold temperatures. I can run these buckets right on the floor and it'll stay cold enough to not be an issue. But in the summertime, when it gets warm in that same spot, you struggle. I, I had, hadn't personally ran. I mean, the, the fix for that is, is to run some kind of uh, a cleaner, like a, something to keep the roots clean. Like I don't want to shout out. Chiller maybe. Yeah, any kind of any like a pool. Yeah, I'll say pool shock. That way, I'm like giving out a brand name, but some some sort of a um, thing to neutralize uh, microbe growth on the on the roots. So uh, instead of doing all that, I just uh, or you can run a water chiller, which are really expensive. But uh, I was just doing the buckets for fun, and I generally do it in the winter time. And uh, right now, I'm still will run them here and there to consume. I have a bunch of nutrient. Uh, synthetic nutrient that you know i bought this or didn't finish the line or whatever so i'll just use what i have to another way of making sure i'm using up everything i got instead of just dumping it down a drain or something but i, I get good i get really good results fast vegetative growth and and really good yields uh, it's like a hydroponic yield i mean i don't know how else to to explain it uh, with that now some people have their opinions about hydroponics over uh, organics but uh, i don't know i've done both and I think it's a good medicine either way. So I'll, I'll leverage whatever I can. And that, that's another thing for people with uh, plant counts. Uh, like here in Michigan, uh, rec like recreational plant count is 12. You have 12 plants. Well, if you do a DWC bucket, fast veg, flip it over, and you can use one plant to fill up a whole fucking four by four, really, because the size of the bucket doesn't really matter so much when you're in water culture and you're feeding the nutrients right directly to it. Uh, you can really uh, get it big enough to be one plant in a four by four and really leverage your plant count if that's the way you want to go with it. So there's a lot of advantages to DWC, but you just have to be on your game. You have to make sure you, you have to be one of the people that likes to check the, whether you like to or not, that will check the, all of your parameters. Um, when you go to feed, make sure you got the right PPMs and the right uh, pH and it's really just a numbers game at that point. I mean, you could go, I, I would suggest going to Dr. Coco's webpage. He's got a great system already dialed out. I mean, it's like following a recipe. Some great guides over there for sure. I think uh, he's mentioned in the past, you can get away with a slightly higher EC in deep water culture, I think, because uh, the constant access to oxygen with the air stones and uh, other things like that. But yeah, definitely making sure you keep it dialed in with the pH and the EC, because as you mentioned, it is kind of like a race car. I'd say it's probably one of the fastest growth mediums up there with cocoa. And um, with unlike cocoa, I don't think it has the buffering, somebody would call it, or some might call it with the media, where if it runs, like if, if something goes wrong, cocoa kind of has a little bit of a grace for errors, I guess. Um, there's room for error, I guess is a better way of putting it. And with DWC, it can go wrong really quick and your plants can just literally die where in cocoa things might, let's say like your watering system failed over the weekend and it just stopped watering the plants completely. Uh, your plants might be a little bit stressed, but they're probably not going to be dead. Where if your air pump goes off in DWC, if you go on for the weekend and you never got the air pump back going, those plants are pretty much guaranteed dead. Um, yeah or very, very close to it. So with that said, I want to pass it next to the American one, and maybe he could give us a little bit of a rundown on super soil. I know that you don't currently grow in it, but maybe just an idea of what super soil is, and then uh, maybe compare that a little bit to what you're currently running, which I think is kind of more like building your own living soil situation. Maybe. Yeah, I'm trying. I, I'm 
I'm constantly rethinking everything I do, but um, like everyone's saying, in general, salt and uh, fertigation is quicker than organics. And, you know, I find with organics, if you don't have a big enough container, you're, you're not supplying the roots what they need enough, no matter almost what you put in there. So one of the ways that, um, well, basically Subcool and a couple of people figured out is make a super soil, which is like, basically too hot to be planting seeds in and it's very rich so um it kind of helps with smaller containers you could get more nutrition in there organically and uh so what you do is when you're transplanting you basically use that as the bottom half or third or depending on what kind of plant you think you're gonna how big it is and you know all those factors take into consideration and you fill in the super soil on the bottom and maybe around the sides a little and then you make a basket of like um, you know, regular potting soil for the, to put your transplant in. And as it grows, it grows into the super soil, giving it a lot more nutrient than if you just use regular bag soil. So that's pretty much my thought and definition of super soil. And, and usually make that with a lot of uh, inputs and then you let it, um, you know, sit for like a month or two and water it down so that any microbes and it'll take off some of that heat and stuff will break down. I don't know, you know exactly everything that happens, but the microbes are working on it and it's just breaking everything down, making it more, at least some of it more plant available and less harsh for the roots. So uh, yeah, that's my take on super soil. <clears throat> and yeah, I'm, I'm finding, I'm wanting to add more and more uh, nutrition as I go with the way I'm doing things now. Um, and, as, as, and also going to bigger containers. I think that's like one of the keys to having a, a good crop of indoor grow is uh, having uh, containers big enough for the size plant that you want. And uh, that's at least a seven gallon container, I think for um, a decent size one, you really want 10 uh, if you can. So um, yeah, that's my take on the super soil. Yeah, sevens are my favorite. Yeah. That, Noah, so you've recently switched over to the Bio 365 and I'm just curious, are you running sevens with a bio three, six, five as well? And how's that working for you? Yeah, I'm using sevens. Uh, and sometimes if I get like a little lazy or I just a little bit like, I don't, don't have the bag and I have a five near me, I'll throw a five in there. And I've done it just like, you know, I, I do bro science. I've never used bio three, six, five. I don't know a whole lot of growers to do. So I am just going off what I'm, you know, seeing and I've experimented and the sevens are, are night and day. Like I grew in a five and like, I'm like, man, it's lacking this. It's lacking that. Like, I'm like, every time I do it, I'm like, I'm not doing that again. So like, I actually just went last time I went to the grocery store. I bought a couple extra sevens so that I would have them handy. Cause sometimes I'll use like a seven or a 10, just like to turn it upside down to like pop a plant up that's smaller to even up my canopy or to put little like uh, cups or plants that are in Dixie cups. So yeah. Uh, but I, I definitely agree that when you're growing and more of a, uh, you know, soil that has microbes and stuff in it, that you're going to want to have bigger containers. That's work best for me. Have you, uh, tried a variety of different microbes or do you have a favorite one that you go to when you're growing in soil that you prefer Noah? Well, uh, I've used a lot of different things. I've, I've used like the dino myco. I've used uh, great white. I've used different things like that. And then I've used like earthworm castings. You know, I, I'm new to this whole scene, but I've just kind of been experimenting, throwing different things at it. I've heard good stuff from a few different growers about uh, some of the stuff that Brandon Rust has on his website. 
And um, I did order, let's look at the bag right here, Amino and Natural Biostimulant. I've used that. I ordered that actually for a recommendation from you, actually. When I first started Bio365, I hit you up. You recommended that. I went to Brandon's website. I got that. So there's some of the things that I've been using so far and still just kind of messing around with. I, I still, you know, I'm an old school, whatever you want to call it, bottle guy. So I, I try and use organic bottle stuff. I've been using BioBiz. I've used a few different things I, that I find at the grocery store, uh, Roots, you know, stuff that uh, like I have some dry amendments from Roots. I actually just got a box of down to earth uh, bio live on a recommendation from uh, full duplex who was the one that originally showed me the bio 365. He uses bio live and I believe bio fish. He, I think he told me a cup of bio live and a cup of bio all. That's what it was. Uh, he mixes into 10 gallons and he uses 10 gallons. He told me that too. He likes 10 gallons of the bio 365 soil too. I used to like use that. Um, uh, what was that down to earth product? You said not the bio fish, but the one before that. Bio live. Bio live. I used to use that bio live before I switched to craft blend. I, I used it for a long time. So I know it's, that's good shit. I like the craft blend quite a bit. And um, I'm going to get into some of the, I guess, nutrient options out there for the hydroponic growers. Uh, one option that I wanted to mention, my buddy Bingus grows in, that you could see here, this is pure perlite. And um, I would recommend people probably look into growing in cocoa first before they try something like this. This is kind of a little bit more old school. Some people call it like the hempy bucket style, but you could see it's just 100% perlite, like the stones. That is a modification because hempies usually get vermiculite. So. Yeah, so I think he kind of made this his own little yeah. setup and he really likes it. There's another group I mentioned called uh, like Sunday Goods. Uh, this probably isn't his best video showing off. Oh, massive defoliation on those plants too, huh? Yeah, he, he runs a pretty heavy defoliation. Oh. I think okay. that he could definitely get more grams uh, per square foot if he was going for the absolute maximum yields there. I think he's going for uh, visuals on the buds. Uh, yeah. But... Okay. Yeah, perlite was one of the, the original ways to do hydroponics. So just, just to grow in straight perlite. Yeah, it's uh, old Dutch greenhouses, I guess, have made uh, use of the technique according to uh, one of the old things, Sunday Goods, I think it's the group that I have mentioned a couple of times uh, that were featured on Grower's House. And they're doing it at a greenhouse scale. Um, but it's just one of the many, many options. Part of the reason I just wanted to show that off is because not a lot of people talk about it, but it is an option. And there are just so many options. The beauty of a show like this is not to say my way is the best way, uh, do my way, but it is to see that there's a panel of six of us right now, and it can be as many as nine some weeks, but, and everybody in the chat's kind of dropping comments saying what they're growing in and uh, some similarities or differences. So it's kind of cool to see that there's not just one way to do it. A lot of people, like Doc said, learn one way and they sort of get caught in their ways and that's maybe all they'll ever do but myself and some others i know here uh, have tried a variety of them and i think it's cool to kind of examine what's available because for one reason or another you might not have access maybe you can't get uh cocoa or maybe you can't get canadian sphagnum peat or one of these other mediums that we've mentioned so you're forced into growing with one thing or another so um a few of the things that i wanted to mention were some nutrient lines like when I grew in cocoa, I was using a line called Heavy 16, which had, in my opinion, way too many bottles, but I think that the end quality was very good. I'd say the taste was very close to, if not better than sometimes what I'm able to grow in organics. 
and an interesting line man it was a synthetic base with all of the um extra shit those were all organic so i thought that was an interesting take on shit yeah so um they have a lot of the stuff like their one line like roots has the mono silicic or whatever the thing that they have in uh what's the really popular root one right now that everyone likes uh power si rsi so they have it's the same exact dose per gallon and the same exact uh ingredient there and then like they're um they have a lot of humic acid stuff in their prime so like spartan was saying like you have your base they have like an a b for like veg and then an a b for flour and then there's a whole bunch like fire prime roots uh and a, a whole bunch of different supplemental lines that could probably maybe be cooked into one bottle but i think they might be trying to get the most profit out of you there um whereas some other lines like i know doc for a while has mentioned and maybe he still does uh using the general hydroponics which i believe is just a base three part and another uh hydroponic nutrient that is fairly popular i know sequence um who used to be on our panel he's now the host of the mission grows grow show he grows with the jacks three two one or at least he used to and i know that uh, red setter farm and many other hydroponic growers have made use of the jacks based on the fact that it's probably one of the most affordable nutrient lines as far as it's a powder base um you can get i think it's like 50 pounds for next to nothing compared to a lot of the other fertilizers and then you mix your own at uh specific strengths depending on the time of the cycle and uh, it's a very interesting it's, option i like that option it's actually the first option i took as a grower my first thing i ordered my first synthetic nutrient was a powder line from grow more mendocino's choice or something if i remember right and i still have some of that that's how long that shit lasts man it doesn't tend to go bad if you don't contaminate it but uh i mean it's probably best I put to... plastic jugs man and that's part of what i use to uh run my organics i'm still using that shit that i bought for my first fucking grow it's like when i started in dwc we just had the raw line of nutrients like raw nitrogen or raw calcium raw potassium and the guy that i was working with just mixed up his own and er like those lines too those lines are sweet and uh it was interesting because you could really then start to see like oh we do have a it might not just be a EC is too high or too low. We do have a molybdenum deficiency or a calcium deficiency because we're just not giving enough of it or the yeah. mix was not done properly. But I think um, it's probably best, and I'll pass it to Doc on this one, but to trust one of the tried and true, like whether it's um, general hydroponics or something else, that they've gone through the years and the science to test the formulas to get the ECs generally in the right range. And maybe you'll have to do a little bit of CalMag as like your remaining EC, but the the base is if pretty. If you're doing solid. cocoa, uh, it depends on your media. There's there's a few other things that that usually growers. I mean, I recommend at least. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you could add on top of those base newts that are just you know designed to separate you from your money. But there's a few things that I think are pretty helpful. Um, I'd like to hear the. Uh, I'd like to hear some of those other ones too, at the end. The things that are oh, there's so many products out there that are countless. Like, what the hell? Well, is no, no, no. What? Well, but like uh, maybe it's some class instead of the individual product, like the class. Anyways, yeah, uh, I could say advanced product. nutrients. If it says advanced nutrients and there's a picture of a really hot girl <laughs> or a really like you know silly cartoon on it, and you're yeah. gonna pay a hundred dollars for a bottle that is gonna last you one grow, and it's only like a, a section of what you're supposed to do, then I'll just. I'll go ahead and say, as far as the cheap home grow goes, we could uh, say that's not in the cheap home grow direction. 
Exactly. And a lot of that <laughs> stuff is really, I mean, I, I don't know sometimes what, what the product actually contains or the sort of pathway that it's supposed to be, you know, producing the claims that it makes. That's what oh, sure. um, but the things that I like, and I, I think most of us agree with these, is silica, uh, a silica amendment that that's usually not um, at all featured in your, your base nutrients. Um, CalMag, certainly if you're growing in cocoa, but CalMag can be helpful in other media as well, just not sort of at the same dosage. Um, humic and fulvic acids, um, sort of after the, the things to top it off with. And then I really like using a wetting agent. Um, if you're doing automatic watering, uh, a wetting agent really helps. Um, so those things, I think, in addition, and to just realize you're not getting that stuff from the base nutrients. Um, you're getting, you know, all your macro and micronutrients, basically, except for adequate silica. Well, and all of those, I think if you do some research, you can look around and find them at either a reasonable price yeah, or if it's a high price, like silica at the, I think the preferred one for hydroponic gardening is like monosilicic acid yeah, and it's going to run you a lot more than the like armor SI is a different type of silica, but I don't think it's immediately available. Potassium, mono, or it's not mono, but potassium silica usually. Yeah. So if you're getting the, the one that I was just referring to, that's going to be a little bit more expensive, but the plants seem to react actually a lot better to it. It seems like immediately available and the roots have quite a strong response. Like I see pretty large commercial and not to say that that makes it a good thing. Large commercial girls do stupid shit all the time, but some successful ones, like a lot of uh, OGs in the field and people that I do have a lot of respect for that are doing well, they um, often are running that despite the extremely high cost per gallon or per liter, whatever it is. The low application rate, I think, helps justify use of it. I think it's one or half milliliter per gallon. Half, yeah. Yeah. So that makes it a stretch a lot further. And uh, so, like, yeah. But uh, I agree with everything the doctor said, actually. Those are all worthwhile amendments. Mm -hmm. And if you do some research, get some quality ones like the uh, humic and folic acids. Those might even be a little on the pricey end, too. Like, I think uh, Full Power is one of them. That's pretty popular. And it has great results. I've seen people foliar it. I've seen people water it into their plants. I mean, that's a bio egg uh, product. I like the bio. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's full power that's bio egg. In terms of those products, those like sort of classes of, of additives that I don't think you need really, I, I no longer use bloom boosters at, at all. Um, I, I think bloom boosters cause people more trouble than they're worth. Um, I think that other like flavor enhancers and like other things that are designed to like even ripeners and stuff like that, um, I'd steer clear of those. Um, there's a lot of products that people buy for the wrong applications. Like they'll buy products that are meant for like a, a soil-based grow um, and use it in a hydro-based system or something like that. And that's also just wasting your money. That's a good point. Um, I had a thought and it just totally ran away from me. That was a good uh, bong hit, apparently. I, I want to just cover one thing with uh, organics. And I don't know all the answers, but at least a thread for someone to follow if they're interested. All the organic gardeners out there, there's ways to make all your own nutrients as well. So, you, for example, for silica, you can find plants that are usually contain high lots, a high amount of silica where they uptake a lot of silica and then you can ferment them like with KNF 
and then use those to apply your silica as well in, in, in a plant available form. But, uh, you know, that takes a lot of time. So, but that's an option. That's an option. JotM is similar to KNF without as much sugar. So if you have problems with the sugar side of things um, and just want to, I think it's even lower input cost, which KNF is pretty damn low input cost. So if you can get cheaper than KNF, you're like pretty much growing for free. Um, if you have the ability to forage, like if you're in downtown Detroit or the city of San Diego, it's going to be a lot harder for you to forest for or forage Surprise, for man. You can find a lot of dandelions in Detroit, man. That's true. But, uh, and we have dandelions here, but I would say that you're not going to get like stinging nettles and lots of the stuff that like, if you're in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest and a, you know, right, for sure. a rainforest where park. it's green everywhere. Don't get caught taking them out of the park, but if you're in the park, you gotta be careful with that for sure. The one thing I wanted to ask doc about in terms of, uh, nutrient like additions and, um, just general products would be flushing agents. So at the end of the grow. Yeah. Um, or even throughout the grow, like heavy 16 that I mentioned, they have one that's called finish and it was given it like, I want to say like two mils a gallon or one mil a gallon for the whole grow. But then at the very end, it goes to like five or 10. So that's like the flushing agent. Uh, it's probably, but- yeah, it's probably a wedding agent. Um, so, you know, wedding agents will act as flushes if you dose them high enough. Um, I tell people that oftentimes with, with yucca, if you're using yucca powder, you can just dose that up and, and create a really effective flush water um, with about like know, 10 times as much yucca as you would normally put in your, your fertigation water. Um, that's actually pretty much what the product sledgehammer is, which is sold as a, a flushing agent, is the active ingredient is just like yucca water. Um, so there, those products that are based like that on, on saponids, um, having a, a small dose of them all the time can be helpful. And then, you know, dosing up to flush out the media will certainly work. So that's probably what that is. That's a good piece of advice. And also just a good reason to sort of understand, not just the, like, you know, that it's working or how it's working, but the why behind a product. Um, so when you look into what something is doing, then if you're just buying like sledgehammer, oh, this is my flushing agent. But if you figure out like what yucca is and yucca water and how it works and what its purpose is, then you could source it cheaper, probably at a different place. So always worth considering that kind of stuff. Yeah. You can certainly make your own yucca water cheaper than you can buy a bottle of sledgehammer. Um, yucca though, yucca is expensive, but man, like you don't need much of it. Most home growers would get away buying like a four ounce little pouch of yucca powder. And that would last for several grows. Yeah. Like the MPK industries, raw stuff that yucca is like a ridiculous, what is that? A 32nd or something of a teaspoon per gallon or something. Tiny pinch. Or I think it's like two gallons or something. It's 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 an eighth or eighth to a quarter of a teaspoon per 10 gallons. Ten, that's what it was so yeah yeah so it's like a tenth of an eighth of a teaspoon per gallon right it's an 80th of a teaspoon per gallon like so when you're looking or when it shows pouch. up and you're like damn this is like a little pouch it's like yeah but you i mean i i'd tell people like take a, a, a teaspoon or take an eighth of a teaspoon and like drop it on a table and like divide it out into like eight to ten piles and then kind of get a visual sense of how much that is because nailing the dose isn't exactly specific but if you go up to like a teaspoon 
that's going to be a flush. That's just going to like flush everything out of the media. So Matthew, I'm just curious. Um, I'm going to transition into medium related things as far as IPM goes, but do you know anything about like the cultivation of yucca and the plant yucca? Does it have, I know that it's heat resistant as far as um, resistances go, but do you have any knowledge of like, is it a pest resistant plant at all? Or is it something that's uh, pests are attracted to? You know, a lot of things have their own pests for sure. Um, but I, I really, uh, I mean, like it kind of depends if you're like, I know that if you're growing it for like ornamental or like landscaping reasons, like there's definitely some organisms that can come around and like, you know, chewing the flowers when it's in bloom or the leaves um, and parasitize the, the plant that way, you know. Um, but usually, in my experience, there, there might be examples, and if people know, I'm curious to hear them. Um, but like, usually, I, I'm not really dealing with people who have, who, if they are growing yucca, who are like really dealing with like the entire plant getting like just destroyed or killed, uh, essentially. I think a lot of these parasites are pretty um, not, not benign, but like, you know, they're not going to like give you a total crop loss kind of problem. Would that be, um, a, would it be ignorant to assume then that maybe yucca is either a resistant plant or that be the pests that are attracted to it are just not very detrimental in the fact that they won't destroy an entire crop? I feel like, and this could be wrong, but like my hot take is that ecologically, uh, you know, yucca is kind of like a desert plant, right? Um, or like at least not necessarily in the deserts, but in a lot of places that are very arid. Um, and so I imagine that, you know, parasitism that's super destructive is probably pretty bad for the parasite because there's not a whole lot of uh, uh, alternative hosts for you, especially if you're specialized. Yeah, nothing um, else around to eat. So it's got to kind of slow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, might, uh, that might sort of extinguish that kind of... Um, that kind of tendency, but um, that's a good yeah. good hypothesis because even the saguaros, I go to Arizona semi often because my in laws live there, and they have some sort of mold or rot, but it doesn't just like topple the cactus over. It slowly, you can see the same cactus like a few times a year over months, and it's still there. And it like starts at the bottom, it works its way up, and it half the cactus looks fine, the other half looks like it's brown and dying and decaying, but it just. I guess, like you said, that mold probably doesn't want to, you know, get rid of its host too soon. So it just slowly feeds on it and grows across it. And there's not too many other options. It's, it's that or the sand, you know. I, I will say this, though. I will say that I know that there are some weevils that attack yucca. Um, and I think that there's also some exotic pests that maybe are more damaging than some of the, like, you know, native parasites yeah. or, or that kind of stuff right and i think dr mj you might know better than i in fact about this uh, do you have yeah any related crops um like agave certainly has pests that, that plague from. and aloe aloe yeah. for sure aloe russet mite for those who don't know russet mites attack aloe too um, they felt like they're in the same family but i didn't know so thank you for confirming that yeah i'm i'm not as familiar with the the pests that attack you know, yucca per se, but certainly farmers can struggle with uh, parasites in their agave plant fields. So I was more asking from a perspective just to sort of shift the conversation into bringing Matthew into the fold. And we talked a little bit about cocoa, DWC, soil, and perlite, to my knowledge, so far as far as mediums to grow in. Uh, and I guess we could toss dirt in there as well. But Matthew, starting with cocoa, is there any uh, like integrated pest management implications that you would think about when you're sourcing cocoa or growing with cocoa? 
and it could be as quick or as short or as long as, as you like, and then we'll just go on to the next medium. I would say that, you know, we already talked about this a little bit in the chat um, and, and Dr. Coco mentioned the sort of the uh, partly futility of, um, of applying microbes with uh, cocoa. It's not that it's not possible, I don't think, to do it, but like, yeah, if you're, if you're using certain kinds of water sources that are going to sort of, um, you know, <laughs> not be conducive to the, to the microbes themselves, it really depends on what you're applying, I would say. Um, I do feel like, but yeah, I don't think that that would be, you know, maybe the best way to go about it. If you wanted to utilize a sort of a microbial uh, population or, or four, I would focus more on the foliage and less on the root zone, which is of course the traditional place that people think to use microbes. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that it's not as suitable, um, in, in a lot of cases. And I think that the, um, the effort into making it more suitable might not be worth it, especially if we're talking about the context of a cheap home grow sort of scenario. Um, I'm open to being wrong about this, but I don't think that it's the case. Uh, again, yeah, if people have, um, input about that. I'm curious to hear that in the chat as well. In terms of running Benny's and Cocoa, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. To, to sort of put it into some jargon or whatever, but um, you know, the issue is how you're key. If you're running automatic watering, which a lot of people in growing in Cocoa run automatic watering systems um, because it lends itself to that, then there's the issue of how you're keeping your reservoir clean. Um, and there's basically two exactly. routes through that. It, and if you take the route where you're putting hydrogen peroxide in your in your tank, which is a really effective route for keeping things sterile, um, you're not going to have a lot of success introducing beneficial bacteria because you're going to be like killing them with the hydrogen peroxide. Um, you can go the other route and you can try to maintain your reservoir with beneficial bacteria like product like HydroGuard. Um, and in that case, uh, you know, you can use microbial life in the containers for other things. So, so from my perspective, I think there's an angle and that's why I asked that grower in the, in the first place, when he asked that, it was like, it depends on how you're, you're fertigating. Um, and he came back, he's running a sterile res. I'm like, well, that, that, that usually means you're putting H2O2 in there, um, which is going to be counterproductive for your efforts to introduce beneficial bacteria. But I really like Matthew's avenue of using the microbes on the foliage itself. Yeah, Another for sure. Great benefit IPM wise there. Is there any benefit as far as nutritionally? Can the plant absorb nutrition? I guess almost like a fulvic acid thing. Can the microbes, not fulvic acid, because that's more of a carrier, but more like uh, the microbes in the soil, I guess. The microbes on the leaves somehow can break down. Uh, if you add some kind of mineral to that spray as well, they can break that down and make it more absorbable by the plant through its leaves? I think so. I think that something like what you're talking about is possible uh, for certain cases, but um, like generally, I think we've even talked about that. That's why people foliar feed, right? Like uh, you can get some of that nutrition through into the stomata. Um, you can do it that way. Some of the microbes, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's really cool research out there that shows how like uh, sometimes the microbes in like a herbivore, you know, as it eats on, on a plant, the, they somehow um, become colonized in some cases in the plant tissue. And maybe this is bad for the plant, but sometimes it's actually good for the plant. Um, 
but like you know things get in that you might not think would and it, sometimes it happens a lot more often than you would think it would happen even i can't wait to um, know more about the whole i think it's called the phylosphere or like yeah. the general you know, ex- exterior of the plant and all that's going on with its microbiome i guess or macro but like there's just so much happening and i think like spartan just mentioned that's probably been happening for a lot longer than we even realized where the microbes might be if you foliared uh some sort of nutrient a week ago and 100 percent of it wasn't uptaken let's say 70 80 90 percent was but there's that 10 percent, and then you foliar feed a compost tea or a, um just even like a worm castings um when you just shake it in water foliar just to get microbes on there i think similar to how in the soil um, it breaks down and makes nutrients available. I think that could definitely happen within the plant tissue. And uh, yeah, so interesting there. I have this little, I have this little, I shared my screen. I could for two minutes talk about, cause I've been, as you guys know, I've been preparing this presentation and I was talking about bacillus. Um, yeah. And uh, without getting super complicated, some of this stuff is a little complex, but um and somebody was talking about nematodes earlier. I think it was dog doctor was asking about the different kinds of nematodes that you could get. This is for uh, moths. Uh, this is for the budworm moth in particular. But, um, you know, the phylosphere is a hostile place. And plants, in some ways, have defenses that are kind of agnostic, whether it's an herbivore or, a, or what we would call a beneficial is kind of um, sort of a, a, a hostile, like the trichomes are hostile, even if they're not glandular. Um, you know, the epidermis is tough so that things can't get through it at that micro scale sometimes. Um, and it's also true for the microbes, you know, I think that there are ways that you can make them in the foliage be more essentially resilient, or at least you can increase their sort of um, residence time. But I feel like you have to be much more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of more consistent and kind of like what we've said often in the past, if you're not testing, you're guessing, right? Just because you apply something onto your plants doesn't mean that it's for one thing, having the effects that you want it to. And for another thing, um, you know, it doesn't mean that they're going to be there for a long period of time. I think a lot of people have this perspective that if they've applied it once, then they don't have to worry at all. Um, it's, it's definitely established. It's there forever. Yeah, exactly. And that's not necessarily true. And that, that thought is what made me think about, um, you know, these, these slides, because one of the things I mentioned is that like, what makes the budworm so dang difficult is that even if you have things like bacillus thuringiensis or whatever, um, you know, if the larva gets in the flower and burrows through, like it's sheltered, you can't really have the, the bacteria has to be eaten for it to be effective. Right. So yeah. Good luck getting that application when it's already inside the plant exactly. enough to get full coverage of the plant and like uh, another one, not BT, but BB uh, Bavaria Bassiana, I think is every four days has to be reapplied. So some people bought that thinking like they read the benefits of it and think, Oh, I'm going to be good for the rest of my, I'll spray it once in veg and I'll be good. And I think like with sulfur, maybe you can get away with something like that. But with uh, these beneficial uh, microbes, I think reapplication is really important to know the timelines. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that's my little diatribe. If you, um, again, if you guys are curious to know more about the microbes, we'll be talking about some, some cool stuff, even the, the cool viral agents. I know a lot of people are curious about that. So anyways, that's a little, it's a little teaser. We don't have to go on for too long about that. Well, I can I have back. a follow-up for you, Matthew. Oh, okay. Well, if you're question. curious. 
Go ahead, yeah. pal. Will Will Yucca help? Uh, will Yucca help as a wetting agent for uh, applying the beneficial bacteria on the leaves? You know, I'm not actually sure. I think I would say yeah. I, I mean, it's a I wetting agent. It, it's a more it's even spread for, for sure. Foliars, so yeah, maybe so. Um, I I think that if you're talking about like a microbial product. Um, and if the wedding, if the, like the, if what you're talking about is like made to be in that way, then I think there's more likely that it would be synergistic, but you know, whenever you're mixing different things together, yeah. it can be kind of difficult. Sometimes you might get some unforeseen consequences. I was going to ask, is, is yucca <laughs> antimicrobial? Because I know that aloe has a lot of antimicrobial properties and that's like why it's really good for cleaning cuts and other things like that. Right. Yeah, I was right. Add to, to Matthew's point that it's really difficult mixing two things when one of them is alive and yes. you want to keep it alive. Um, so yeah, that would be an important point, but in so far as it would act as an effective wedding agent, I can vouch for that part. I think so. Yeah. And also I would say that, um, what was I going to say about that micro, like the word antimicrobial, um, means nothing without like kind of yeah it's not all microbes point. it could kill one microbe and be antimicrobial so maybe it'll kill or one certain... species yeah. or maybe it kills some but not all of them so i just want whenever people bring it up i mean even i use the term nothing wrong with it but like there's so many kinds of microbes as it can be very um it can it can just introduce some confusion as to like what is meant by that and to what degree and so yeah definitely definitely take a look and ask providers that create that have the microbes that you might want to apply and you know ask them if you can like do you think this would work or um are they going to be susceptible in a way that's going to be very toxic potentially yeah good good uh, point it's a very nuanced issue and, and a discussion. I just think that knowledge is power. And if you have the information, then you can at least uh, do your best with it and, and take all these things into consideration and um, go from there. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, Matthew, uh, it looks like Spartan must've gotten dropped out. I'm going to re-add him to the call. But one of the things I wanted to ask you was I've heard often about medium, uh, mediums to grow in, that inert media is always better than a living or live media like a soil because it's less likely to have pests. So something like a cocoa or perlite or DWC um, is going to be maybe safer than growing in soil because it's inert. Um, so maybe could you speak a little bit to the idea that growing in inert media is going to be safer from an IPM perspective from pests? So the advantage of a sterile medium is that you don't get the you don't get the pathogens or you don't let them establish or certain pathogens anyways. Um, so that's the advantage, but the disadvantage that you don't get the good guys there that could be the sort of um, uh, sort of anti-pathogenic barrier, the sort of bio barrier that you might be able to establish, which admittedly is again, like you just said, super nuanced, super complex. Um, I'm not just saying that to be obfuscatory. Um, it's, it really is that way. And a lot of people simplify or seek to oversimplify it, partly for educational reasons, but also because um, well, it's kind of hard to account for everything, right? Even, even experts and microbiologists, right? They can't know every single microbe and interaction. But yeah, so the inert, the inert advantage is that you're kind, of, you're kind of making this trade-off. And I'm always apt to talk about this aspect, which is that... Um, a lot of people talk about the benefits of microbes with plants. And of course, um, of course, it's a very storied history over 500 million years or, you know, or more really um, 
But what we find in ecology papers, or what I, I've read, what I, how I understand is that um, a lot of plants actually, if they escape the environment in which they grew up in, and of course that's with a caveat, what is the origin or where, what are we talking about with establishment? But basically, if you take a plant, you remove it from its location or, or species or population. Um, and you remove it from the typical environmental stressors that it has, uh, biotic uh, stressors like pathogenic microbes or herbivores or things that its various symbioses help to counter. Well, if those are gone, it doesn't have to invest in that symbiosis and uh, in, in the in the mutualisms, I, I should say, that were beneficial to it. So I would just say that just because. Uh, plants often do really well with various microbes. It's actually not true to say that um, they can't do well without them or that um, they're necessarily going to be detrimented by it. Um, they can perhaps invest less in those mutualisms, and but then you take over that responsibility as the cultivator, uh, right? And so, so you're kind of giving them the ability to put everything into this physiological growth, uh, vegetative and flowering, but you know, um, you know, you're kind of taking on that burden yourself as a grower. You you are trying to, in essence, be that environment. Um, if that makes sense, you are so, the symbiont now <laughs> instead of all the other organisms. I am the captain now. Yeah, exactly. I think that makes sense. <laughs> I wanted to uh, just follow up with a comment that I think is pertinent because I've seen it happen so many times to so many people getting mediums from grow stores, whether it's soil or uh, ProMix is the one I'm going to pick on and point out because I've seen ProMix, which is a lot of people actually think it's a soil, even though it's a soilless media. Um, but that being said, if you go to a grow store, a lot of the times you'll look out back or around the side and you'll see that there's pallets stacked up right next to each other and they're being stored outside. They're getting rained on. They're maybe next to the grass. Uh, there might be, you know, spider mites growing on the bushes right next to them. Um, so just because you have a quote, sterile media does not mean that when you bring that ProMix home into your house, that it's going to be devoid of any pests because um, I can't remember exactly what bug it is, but I feel like there's a pretty common one. Um, I feel like people sometimes blame the medium for it, but Oh, like what, predatory what mites or fungus like mold mites or yeah, fungus or springtails. Yeah. yeah, springtails. I'd be less worried about those, but uh, fungus gnats would be one that I'd be pretty annoyed if I thought I was starting in a sterile medium and I, you know, pop my solo cups full of, you know, promix or whatever, and I start to grow my seedlings, and then all of a sudden you've just got fungus gnats flying all around. And if you look in your bag, they're full of them. And I've heard that literally hundreds of times at this point. I mean, it's not like one or two or a dozen. Like so many growers, I've heard have this exact same experience it typically happens in the summertime typically happens when they're getting stuff directly from a grocery store but uh, just wanted to throw out the caveat that because you're growing in a quote uh, sterile medium doesn't mean that it's always going to be pest free so making sure to check out sentinel's youtube channel and all of his other content is a good idea to stand top of all your pest management things but something i wanted to follow up as well with is um, we've talked a lot about mediums for growing i mean for veg and flour but a lot of people do different things, myself included, when they're cloning. So I'm curious if you guys take a different approach when it comes to cloning, because I do. I don't grow in DWC, but I love my little aero cloner or uh, water. I don't, even, I don't even remember what it's called. It's like the cheapest one. Oxy cloner is what it is. 
And um, I don't even use the air stones. I literally just put the um, air tube in there because the grow stones get so dirty and like you could use like denture cleaner, or get a new one every time or whatever. But if you just air get, pump. yeah, the air pump, you just stick your air pump into one of the collars in the corner. And I do that on uh, both corners. And then you've got 18 other sites or whatever, which is plenty for my uh, needs. And that's how I go about cloning. But I've also used the little rapid rooter pucks or uh, root riot pucks. They're like kind of a peat almost medium, but it's uh, I think it was developed by NASA or something. So they say, and um, it's interesting that they sprout seeds pretty well. And I also think that they can grow clones pretty well. But the one piece of advice I got from a guy named Rootball Randy was if you let your clones soak in a cup of water, even for like a few hours or overnight, and then put them into the root riots, I tended to have a better success rate when I did that versus just cutting it off the plant like dipping it in either aloe or clonex and then going into a clone plug. But I'm curious, uh, Spartan, what do you like to do as far as your cloning medium? Pretty much what, <clears throat> pretty much what you just said. Uh, I have an oxycloner and I like to use that. I'm using just the regular setup. Like it, I'm using the, the, the little air stone that came with it and the venturi pump that came with it. And I just change it, the water out every week and I keep it pretty full usually. <laughs> I'm just using straight tap water. So it's got chlorine and all the other shit in it. And I figure that keeps it neutral and it does. It gives me good results. Um, that really makes life easy. Before that, I was using exactly what you're saying with the those little peat cubes, the root right cubes. And I still use those for popping seeds. I like to use those for popping seeds. It keeps the moisture around the seed line that's pop so that it pops. So I don't have to sit there and baby that shit. I see people have such good success rates when they're popping seeds and those, I just hate shelling out to buy them like each run. So that's why I haven't gotten them after, you know, my first hundred or whatever that I use for clones and seed popping. I was like, you know what? Yeah, I got, I got a, a pack of a hundred on sale. They had a super sale. The, one of the bigger grow shops in, it might be the biggest grow shop in the state called uh, grow green, Michigan. They have like crazy deals every Friday. And one day they had one a hundred, pack of those root rides for four dollars and 20 cents limit one so i went and got it that's a deal man i would have done yeah. too fuck yeah dude they're they're super effective i mean for popping seeds or taking clones in my experience so if you're not going into dwc i think i mean i actually prefer just jiffy pellets the bandable little peat discs um i've used those too yeah, and they're cheaper too. I, I think the advantage of like the rapid rooters, the root riots, is that they don't, you know, they don't fall apart. So you can put them into a DWC situation without clogging your filters and stuff like that. Um, but if you're going into like I start my seeds, I don't clone very often, but I start my seeds in Jiffy, so in peat-based media, just a little plug, you know, and it travels along with them for the rest of the grow. I should do that because I'm growing in peat-based soil and uh, right now I'm starting in paper towel and then I just plant into the solo cup once it's got a tail. Oh, yeah. I start in paper towels too, but I have a whole video on my germination process if you're interested in that, but it, it's complicated, but it's fast. I've read the guide and I've actually recommended it to a lot of people who've been struggling and they yeah. found success with it. One, because you give uh, EC range, which I think helps people because a lot of the time they might just fry it and give it way too much nutrient at the beginning or give it way too much light at the beginning or not have the right saturation. And those little bags, I think that you recommend the seedling bags, they have really good aeration. So yeah. even if you hit it pretty heavy with water, it's not yeah. going to overly waterlog the medium and it'll allow the seed to pop pretty much all the time from uh, my experience if the seed was going to pop or if it had a chance to pop at all. Sometimes seeds just aren't viable, which uh, is unfortunate, but it does happen. Yeah, no, that's true. So um, 
you said that you don't clone often doc but if you were to do it um what would be your technique would it be similar to the uh poppin seeds yeah i mean for like my home grow situation yeah i would just clone into jiffy pellets probably um that's what i've done in the past anyways so yeah that's exactly what i would do um if i was doing this at scale and you know working with like commercial farms and stuff i really like aeroponic cloning which hasn't been brought up yet over the hydroponic cloning um but that's much more complicated and i don't have sort of a need for that in my own setup yeah they make those things huge in the spray i think it allows the temperature to not necessarily get as warm or if it does get as warm it might not matter as much because it has access to oxygen and uh, things like that um it is definitely a, a quite a different setup i've even seen uh, in between those two and it might even be considered aeroponics but it, they call it fog ponics where they have like a fogger instead of a mister um which just makes like a really dense fog and that actually lingers in the basin yeah and that instead of like spraying like the um aero cloners do the misters yeah yeah or sitting in the actual water and having airs bubble um it just fogs it up but noah the grower i know that you're a pretty regular taker of clones so what's your technique over there well same stuff you guys just talking i have an aero cloner i use that i use the wrappers i've used rock wool i've used all methods but i've actually been using my aero cloner I have an old school one I've had forever. It's a turbo cloner. And I was just kind of like, I didn't want it because I'm pretty particular about cleaning it. As they get older, man, boy, they get some stuff stuck in that thing. You really want to kind of clean it with just a little bit of like, I don't even know, I'd say like maybe four milliliters of some of bleach uh, and put hot water in there. And then it just run all night and then like then run like regular water through it afterwards. But I like to really keep those things clean because if not, man, you'd be surprised how much hard stuff will come out and clog up those little sprayers and stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to clean it. So I went to the store and got some uh, the root ripe things and uh, made in some Clonex, a little, little package I had in the fridge and just made it old school this last time. And I think the aero cloner method is a little bit. Okay, so they're both pretty pretty similar when it comes to rearing, but I think like the ones from the aero cloners, I almost feel like they're a little further along. Like if you like look at one from like three weeks compared to one that came out of a, the little cubes three weeks, I think the other ones are bigger and a little bit more vibrant. So it's just whatever your personal preference is. And I always tell everybody if you're you know if you're taking clones, if you got something that works, go for it because sometimes it can be tough to kind of hit that thing on the head when you don't really know how to do it. You know, that's a great point. Doctor, this reminds me, Dr. Coco, I remember we were talking um, about commercial size cloners and I was bitching about them and uh, you kind of tasked me to go look for one. I forgot to mention, I found one that was interesting, but of course it's one of those ones that doesn't have a price. So, you know, they're expensive as hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's called, it's called quick clone. Q, I've got it pulled up on my Q U I C L O N E. And, uh, they like guarantee hundred percent success. Like all you do is make the cut, you put it in the machine. Yeah. It's a fully automated fucking system. Is this the one that has its own like cabinet, like fully? Yeah. It's like a cabinet lid closes. Yeah. It's got yeah. a plastic lid. I, I've it's seen got, like, that one. Trays. Yeah. Nice. I think, I think like you're dealing one. towards the six digits on that thing. Damn. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. No, there's some expensive equipment out there, guys. There's no question about that. You can definitely make your own, throw a dome over one of these aeroponic cloners and then have pretty close to what they're rigging up. It's on wheels, so you can push it around. It's got four trays, but it can hold a total of 1,392 cuts. So you could buy, if it's in the, you know, however expensive he was just describing, you could get a few 250 site options maybe that are similarly effective like Noah was talking about the turbo cloner the one thing that, that he mentioned is that those sprayers do clog that is actually one of the reasons i don't like the thing as much because ultimately everybody gets to that point where they're like fuck i don't want to clean this thing so it either one clogs or two they switch to a different method um oh this thing is like fucking ridiculous it, it tracks water temperature air temperature fucking everything and it's spraying i think it's an arrow like you guys were seeing i don't think it's like a fogger maybe like it just fogs the roots underneath. It looks like the collars look like they're made out of a, a cocoa. The one thing I want to say about collars is there's a group called Permaclone. And I went from the OxyCloner, which is like a kind of a soft foam. The first time I cloned with it, 100% success. Best roots you've ever seen in your life. Second time, like 80, 90% success. Pretty good roots. Third time, and I, cl- I washed it every time. I'd like, you know, take it to the sink and like wash it, try and bleach it, H2O2, whatever. I tried a bunch of different methods. By like fourth, fifth, sixth time, I was getting maybe 50% success, and the roots were pretty straggly. So I found this permaclone collar, which you can sterilize by, I think you just put it in a turkey bag. Uh, they have the solution described on their website or whatever, but I'm pretty sure it's a, I think it's H2O2 and you just throw it in the wall. Uh, I don't, you might not even need that. I'm pretty sure you just put it in a bag and then uh, looks like my connection might be unstable. Throw it in the microwave and then heat it up and that sterilizes them. And then you wait for it to cool down. And you can reuse it for the next run. You know, the, my oxycloner came with, I don't remember the fucking brand, but I remember I was actually reading the directions on it and it said, use these, these specific, clone collars and you can reuse them again and again all you gotta do is wash them with soap and water and that's what i've been doing i've been having good results and i've been using them three four rounds at least now still using the same ones so i think that's badass i don't like the when i had the turbo cloner you had to be pretty much you had to replace the and get new fucking collars every time to have success because like you said they start to not be successful you start to get a couple here a couple there not and if you change and get all new collars, it fucking goes away. And that's good. They're kind of like spongy. And they, I feel like they're just a perfect breeding ground for bad microbes, potentially. Like they get wet. They're around, you know, plant material fairly often. And even if you clean it as well as you can, there's those little porous spots in there that I feel like once it dries up or whatever, like mold, slime, nasty junk gets in there that you can't even see. Yeah. And it's hard to clean out. So um, getting one that's kind of more coated or, or resistant like the permaclone or like the ones that i think even the more if you got a oxyclone today versus like five years ago or 10 years ago they probably every so often update their product hopefully and uh, maybe one of the complaints they're getting is hey these collars are only working for x amount of runs so they go ahead and upgrade and uh maybe hit them with a, a coating or something that makes them a little bit more resistant to yeah just recently got it too probably about a year ago so it's pretty new yeah so and like i said i really like the product um it's been my go-to over the root rides because it's not something that you have to buy every single run um so just for the convenience of that i really enjoyed that option and um so yeah 
I don't clone a ton, but it's nice to have the ability to, when you find a plant that you love, run it over and over and get as many clones as you want. And nice. giving clones to friends is so fun because it when is. you get the smoke bear sample, it's so satisfying because it might not even be anything like yours or it might be so much like yours, but no matter where it is in that spectrum, it's just like the best feeling ever. They got that grow, they got that plant, they loved it, or maybe that's not the best thing they ever had, but they got to try it at least. Yep, I love that too. And do you, I have a question for everybody who's using cloner machines. Do you put anything in the water? I'm using just straight fucking city tap water. Good old H2O. I used to mess around with uh, mixes of different nutrient levels and different uh, aloe water or coconut water or, you know, all these. Other, and I just feel like that made it get dirtier and harder to maintain. And I agree with you, man. Less yeah, likely for me to dump it out and refill it with a fresh water. A lot of these aeroponic systems come with like the, you know, they ask you to use their own proprietary blend of, of newts. Um, and I'm, I'm curious exactly what's in there. There shouldn't be a lot. I think it's probably more things like wedding agents and other stuff like that than um, nutrients per se. But um, I'd wonder, cause that Clonex works really well. I know a lot of people that use the Clonex. Right. It could be solution. hormones for sure. It, it, it you know, <laughs> they don't have to tell you what's in all these things. So they don't. Um, but I will say that it's not just plain water that they're advising us to use in the, the aeroponic cloners. Plain water will work though. And uh, if you don't have to make it more complicated than that, sometimes um, once you, like Noah said earlier, once you get a system that works for you, the system is the solution. And if it works for you, it works for you. And once you hit that nail on the head, if you can keep it running, I know a lot of growers have been doing this for a long time. And almost every single one has gotten to the point where that boogeyman comes along, where their cloning system either stops working as well or stops working entirely. And they either have to like shut things down, they lose something. So uh, even if you've got it down pat for years and years and years, all of a sudden, sometimes maybe it's hoplite and thyroid, maybe it's something in your room, but uh, it's always kind of good to be aware of the different options that are available. One thing I want to throw out there, um, shout out to Johnny Canacy. I don't know if he's in the chat with us tonight or not but he's a Vegas grower out there. And he tried something from a non-cannabis channel that he found fruit trees were cloning in sand, straight sand. He would go to Home Depot, got quick Crete sand. So it's just pure, like a pretty, you know, decent grade sand. It's, it's for, I think, making concrete or other things or like playground sand can work because it's pH proper. But all he does is take sand, throw it into like a, an old fast food tray that like a takeout container, plastic container that comes with a little lid and he fills it like a quarter inch or so, half inch deep, full of sand, waters it. I think he uses aloe water in there now, but not even like heavily, just so it's slightly damp, sticks his clones in and between seven and 14 days, he gets a hundred percent every time. And he's been doing that for a year plus. He pulls them out of the sand and just like what sprays the, the sand off of the roots or just leaves it like that? He uses like a spoon usually and just separates them because usually the roots are grown so thick through the sand that they're actually interlacing with the other clones within the tray. Okay. Well, I was just surprised. a regular clone tray and fill that with sand then. Fuck it. Yeah, exactly. That, that's all you would need. I mean, um, he, he just did that, I think, because he's a very resourceful <laughs> grower. I think he would, he's one of the epitome of cheap home grow. He, he's a you know, yard uh, sale shopper, and he, he puts all, all the stuff to good use, even including his takeout containers. I mean, and I, I love that about solution. him. It's an easy solution. As long as it, I mean, I guess, does he just continue to water? How does he monitor the void moisture? He never has to water it again. He usually waters it one time, and then he has roots. So in no, no power, uh, a small amount of light, just like a tiny bit of light over it. Mm -hmm. But he said 
that's been his go-to solution ever since. And I just wanted to throw it out there again, because this is sort of our episode where we're talking about different mediums, different options to grow in. Not to say that there's one best way. We're all just kind of sharing our way of doing it and the options that are available because sometimes people don't even know. Um, That's a cheap one. I think you said the bag of sand was like five bucks for like 50 pounds or something, which is way more than you'll ever need. And you can also use it in in your soil if you're an organic grower. I mean, sand, silt, clay, like we were talking about earlier, the living soil people are now actually starting to use a little bit of sand for their aeration. Not a ton because it makes your medium a lot heavier, but um, it it is something. And there's a lot of uh, micronutrients and stuff in, in some of the sands. A lot of it's silica. Yeah, excellent drainage in sand. Like almost too good of drainage. Yeah, would be, yeah right. That it, is the problem it, around it here. Difficult to to grow in straight sand in a container that drained. So well, even in, in nature, because like where we're at here, Doc, yeah, we're by the that. beach. There's erosion because if you don't have the right types of like, there's mostly succulents being grown. They have to like go through and do like active. Uh, erosion control planting plants where they're growing these very specific hardy like palm trees and, and, and succulents and they even put these meshes down and a whole bunch of different strategies some beaches they dig up these mounds to make like the winds less dramatic they don't let people take rocks off the beaches and stuff like there's so many um, issues when you're as close to the beach as we are and even once you go up inland a little bit the sand the soil below is so sandy that not that we get a bunch of rain, but when we do, it just runs straight through. And, straight through. Uh, so that, yeah, this part where I live here is very sandy and it's, it, you need to water kind of constantly or, you know, the plants won't have access to water because it, it just drains right out of the media. Um, so that's in thinking back about like the perlite versus sand um, growing in straight perlite offers a lot of the advantages of sand, but it holds on to water better. Um, so you can sort of get away with it. Like he was in growing in straight perlite and containers that train, but you still have to water pretty frequently. Well, and it, it's good, uh, home for the microbes. I think with a uh, certain, like, I know, uh, pumice is actually probably more so than perlite and funny enough, perlite in living soil. I started with the same base that Spartan grown has used in the past. I think is the Michigan made mix, which has a perlite as its aeration, but because living soil, the way that it tends to work is the compaction over time that perlite gets crushed and it becomes like a sand or yeah. it just basically dissipates into nothing it also is uh it used uh, rice hulls too in there as part of the mix for aeration that shit gets broke down after a while for me it's been one run uh, other than the stuff that's the very very top some of that stuff will be there after one grow but within one grow in the earth box i've looked through when i've like transplanted out the old soil to transplant the next grow in and there's like not a single <laughs> beneath that first inch rice hall that survived. So I definitely really lean heavily on the pumice because I found, although it's definitely heavier, um, like the actual weight of it, if you're trying to like lift pots, it holds its position better in the soil. It doesn't want to float up to the top, which is something I really don't like about the perlite. If it doesn't get crushed, it has a tendency to float out. And that's probably why the compaction happens is that perlite where it used to be aerating you know all these little rocks in your medium they all float up to the top and then it's just a bunch of peat crumpling together and becoming one big slimy uh peat bog down there but you don't really want the plants aren't gonna grow as well on that and the aeration isn't there so it's um really difficult to maintain a proper soil if you're reusing it run after run after run 
I and, love feet for the sips though, because I, th- I don't, I don't know, man. I think it's because the aeration from underneath maybe. And then I'm also on every transplant, I'm popping out the center of those things. So that's all getting aerated too, I guess, from the inside out. But uh, yeah. I just love peat. <laughs> it's it's like a low till, I guess, because we're just transplanting that root ball in. But that fresh ball that you put in each time, it just comes in with so much life. And then the rest yeah. of it kind of, once it taps into the, the bottom basin, like you're saying, I've ever since I've gone to the earth box, it's, it's hard for me to want to go back to anything because it's one, just really easy to grow in and two, very productive. Like it's the closest thing I've had to cocoa. I'd say it's on par yield wise. Uh, as far as speed, the veg time is like one week behind. Um, but if I dial everything in perfectly, I can get it to like only like a five day difference in my veg from seed. And then the flowering time is exactly the same. And uh, I'm actually yielding a little bit better because I'm using more soil than I ever use cocoa. I was probably using way too small of cocoa pots and I was running like a lot more plants and just kind of getting a variety of flavors. than if I just had like a giant cocoa pot or a cocoa bed, I probably could have yielded way more. Like if I just filled an earth box full of cocoa or something versus a bunch of one gallon pots or a bunch of three, two or five gallon. How much space do you have in your, under your light? How much, is it a four by four? No, it's not even close to that. It's oh, uh, a, I'm in three feet wide by one and a half feet deep. So it's five square foot base. And it's like a four by two, but smaller. If you took a foot off each side of a four by two. Because city pickers, I like better than earth boxes, which is the same kind. It of wouldn't fit the shape. Box. No, no, they got small ones now. They're half the size of the ones that I use. They have uh, so. smaller earth boxes too. One of uh, our listeners, yeah. they went from growing autos in pots to growing autos in their earth boxes, and they were supposed to be like two to three foot autos, and they ended up being like three to four foot autos, and like stretching out their whole tent. <laughs> but their yield is going to be triple what their pot yield was when they're growing in soil versus soil. That's just going from pots. It's just the difference of watering frequency. It's like watering on time. Kind of and you don't know. Like Doc said earlier with cocoa, yeah. the beauty is it's always at 90, 95% saturation. You're just going to keep it at that peak point where it's going to grow at its happiest. Where with the sips, you're giving the same option where you're never overwatering or underwatering because you're just looking down that hole. If there's water, you don't do anything. If it's empty, you refill it. So at that point, it, it takes away the biggest mistake that even veteran growers I see have issues with, where they might just be lifting the pot and then water too early or water too late. And the plant's not going to grow as quickly as if it was perfectly saturated basically the entire time. The micros are thriving. Everything in there is just kind of like the DWC, kind of dialed in and uh, ticking all those boxes. Yeah. Love that shit. I wanted to make one. I mean, I, I agree with most of the stuff that you said about pumice versus perlite, Jack. Um, it, it certainly, some of it migrates up to the top, but like I always get perlite still down in the bottom of my containers. I, I, you know, when you're like buffering cocoa, when you're reusing it, like the perlite floats out. And even that, I mean, you kind of have to work at it to get it all to separate. I've tried. Um, I, I think that pumice is great if it works for your style of grow it's not it doesn't have exactly the same like hydrological properties that perlite has um but it does act as aeration really effectively it it doesn't have the same sort of relationship with water though um and it's not as suitable for for high frequency fertigation um but it it's a great uh, amendment for like a soil grow like you're talking about um for that aeration for the additional aeration 
for the real question, which one's better to get all up in your nose and lungs when you're breathing um, deeply and you're both, working in there? Both, both right? are terrible. Yeah, yeah it's both are terrible. <laughs> yeah, it, water it down guys. before. You don't breathe that stuff. Like, do yes. whatever you have to do to not breathe the perlite or the pumice dust. Um, yeah, that, that's any dry amendment, dust. whether it's a, a powder nutrient uh, from an organic or a synthetic base. Like, when I'm mixing my soils, I put on the neck gator and I throw on a N96 bandana and I just don't want to breathe the shit in because there was a guy locally who worked at uh, one of the churches who grew food for the homeless people and he was like their soil guy and he always mixed the soil and was never wearing a mask and ended up getting legionnaires disease and dying from it which was like oh I knew somebody who got legionnaires disease and they worked in the greenhouse and yeah it's bad it's a real thing a lot it's a real thing it can literally kill you so I mean this is supposed to be a medicine for most of us. I mean, even if it's recreational, you don't want to die doing something that cannabis recreationally hasn't really killed anybody, but you don't want to die tangentially related to it because you're trying to grow your own crop, you know? Growing cannabis has killed some people. So probably more people than have died using cannabis. And transporting yeah, sometimes, it. Sometimes you get a lethal, um, you know, dosage of lead sometimes if you're growing out there. They say and- like... Someone said you can't uh, overdose on cannabis, but it can kill you if they drop a uh, two-ton bale of it on your head. <laughs> and <laughs> there were cases of like people that unfortunately died. They had like 100-ton loads in the holes of a boat, like underneath a shipping container. And the people that went in were, uh, you know, extracting that. And then occasionally their acetylene torches and stuff have malfunctions and issues, and they blow themselves up. But like I said, that's not cannabis killing people. That's an explosion, right? Um, so. We just want to try and do things safely as much as possible and uh, warn people of the potential risks that are involved. So soil is, um, like we were talking about earlier, I think uh, Can Can Grow and, and a few other people up in Canada that I've talked with that are growers have mentioned that they grow in cocoa or um, rock wool because they're very, um, or somebody in their family has immune issues where if they were to be around something like soil all the time, where there's just that, even if it's a 1% or 0.1% risk, it could expose them to something that could be potentially lethal or hospitalize them and just cause them a great harm and distress. So it's not worth uh, whatever extra benefits they might perceive being uh, available to go through a method that's going to be risky to their health. So it's always worth considering. Uh, every little nuance thing. Everybody's situation is unique. I know we say that a lot and it's not to be a cop out, but to uh, make people aware that, you know, listen to your own body. A lot of people, um, shout out to Buddha boy on another show. He mentioned that um, men, especially a lot of the times treat our bodies like deferred maintenance and we won't take care of ourselves, our health enough. And until something's really messed up, we don't go to the doctor until it needs to be like sewed back on or we're like keeled over in so much pain that we can't even walk. So knowing what maybe you're allergic to or um, have tendencies to cause negative things. Like I won't say exactly what it is, but Matthew shared things about like diet that he doesn't eat for particular reasons. And it's, it's important to understand those things so we can avoid. Or sensitization is a big one that uh, whether it's pesticide exposure or exposure to an agricultural product, um, whether that's something used to grow or something that's a result of um, cultivation uh, yeah, you can just get sensitized to stuff over time. You might not have had this and then suddenly you just develop it. And I always bring up the instant coffee and cockroach sensitization 
but like there's tons of other examples of that and it goes really well with what we were saying about perlite and um and just sort of particulates in general just little exposure sometimes you know over time um you don't notice it but it's not an acute toxicity it's a chronic toxicity and they're very uh difficult to tell and if you have underlying conditions that might mask it great more so um then it's all the more difficult to really know and ascertain. So really do the due diligence and, and find out. I, I agree with you. That's sort of a, um, an experience that I've come across a lot with farmers in general and people who like to grow um, generally. So I'm curious, we've talked a lot about different mediums for growing and now cloning and uh, kind of a whole range of different things, including a little bit of safety there at the end. Is there any products or techniques or growing related discussion that any of you guys would want to uh, discussed tonight maybe it's even a nutrient that we haven't talked about that maybe you have experience with that you either liked or disliked i know uh doc maybe i'll pass back to you because earlier we talked about nutrients maybe to avoid like the uh high ticket items that maybe we are the cheap home grow we want to steer people away from potentially stuff that's going to separate them from their money i uh already kind of put down the advanced nutrients because i think the just cost alone for the line uh, and lack of, you know, clear justification of what it's going to do for you makes it not necessarily the top choice for people that would listen to the show. I but, agree. Uh, is there any other ones out there that you would say, hey, um, avoid this? Or maybe I think the one thing that you have done well in the past is say, here's a general warning. If it's telling you to do yeah. X, then avoid Y and Z. Things you should look for in your nutrient lines are a low recommended PPM or EC and never telling you that you need to flush. If, if you're looking at nutrient lines and they're advising that you should run a high electrical conductivity and flush, like some cannabis lines advise like a, a weekly flush or like a bi-weekly flush or um, several flushes during the grow cycle, none of that should be necessary. And that suggests both of those things, a high recommended EC and a, a flushing interval suggests that something's out of balance with those blends and that they're having to run a pretty high electrical conductivity to get you the necessary and the nutrient element ratio and that it's leading to buildup that needs to be periodically flushed out. So look for lines that, you know, recommend fairly low doses and never necessarily advise you to flush. Like telling me to flush on the nutrient label is just a, a big red flag for me um plant it's it's tough on plants um you know when you drop the flushing will certainly be a good idea if there's a buildup going on and, and there's something that needs to be addressed before it starts to damage the crop but you know dropping the the bottom out of the ec like that forces the plant to address uh, to change to address that change um, and then when you bring it back on EC again, it's got to change again. And it, it's really sort of a rough adjustment to it in terms of the, you know, going from like 1500 electrical conductivity to like 200 um, and then back. So if you can avoid doing that during your grow, you should. And there's certainly lines. I think that a lot of the lines that were originally developed for um, food crops um, like general hydroponics um, are, are perfectly appropriate for cannabis crops. Um, you don't need to, to pay what we call the cannabis tax, which is like an extra 20 to 30% that they tack on because 
they are trying to convince you that there's something particular about their product and it will do a better job, particularly with cannabis. Those are my, my sort of 30,000 foot view thoughts about nutrients in general. Great advice there. I think um, another piece of advice somebody I saw mention is like, if you just mix the potting soil with like a tomato food, if you've never grown cannabis before, you'd be surprised with how successful the results would be. And they're fairly similar. The nutrients aren't that different for a lot of the plants. One of the, I mean, what my soil is essentially based on is something called the Cornell mix, which was popularized in the cannabis scene by a guy named Clackamas Coot. And it's called the Coots mix, which is roughly one third aeration, one third compost, in his case, vermicompost or worm castings, and um, one third Canadian sphagnum peat with a few percent of like amendments i use like a build a soil uh craft blend but he has his own blend that actually they used to sell through build a soil in a few other places but you'd use BioLive or any other like tomato food uh, any organic input dry powder nutrient that you mix into the soil at a you know few percent ratio with the other third a third a third but it doesn't need to be overcomplicated. like doc was just saying general hydro is general they're growing food crops, they're growing flowers, they're growing a whole bunch of different plants. And it works for a lot of different plants if you give it in the correct EC, uh, correct PC, uh, pH, and you're monitoring your input and your runoff, it can be very effective. And same is to be said for simple soils. It doesn't need to be super complicated. I actually used to grow with the subcool super soil, loved it, had tons of success. I will say the fact that it has to cook kind of makes me think that it's composting or allowing some of those nutrients to break down because it's so hot. And that's why the lasagna tech, where you kind of use like a potting soil at the top and then the bottom is like a super soil. I think that's why it was potentially so effective was uh, by the time the roots got down there, most of that stuff hopefully was broken down and available for the plant. And I mean, it worked for a lot of people and he advocated growing in large pots. Like basically everybody else here has for, if you're going to grow in organics, got to give them enough space for the roots, got to give enough nutrition for the plant, which, um, if you're going one-to-one, -one, I think that it's just pretty obvious for most people out there who've grown in both. You can't grow the same size plant in a soil pot, let's say one gallon. If you had to do one gallon versus one gallon, the cocoa plant is going to be massive. The soil plant is going to be maybe a foot or two tall and sparsely populated with buds where the cocoa plant, I've grown in one gallon pots and gotten several ounces out of there and had massive three to almost four foot tall plants. So it's uh, fairly clear to me, even if you're trying to, your best to dial it in, uh, like one to one in a one gallon versus one gallon. Uh, but that being said, this isn't a competition. I think it's uh, more important to realize just what is uh, possible. And the fact that, you know, a seven gallon pot isn't that much bigger than a five gallon pot. Five gallons, not that much bigger than a three. And if you plan out your grow space, you can maybe fit stuff with organic that you weren't uh, even, you know, realizing was possible. Like, I think that a lot of people have gone to the beds now too, or earth boxes or city pickers or some other style where instead of growing in a round pot, they've stretched it out to give more uh, space for the soil. So Good there's summer. tons of options. When you said the beds, that reminded me today. <coughs> Damn, I'm choking myself. <coughs> but anyway, I found <clears throat> in my outdoor beds, Three volunteer cannabis plants. Damn. Excuse me one second. While he gets some water, I'll say that something cool for the beds is like a soaker tape. The blue mats make like a dripper tape. 
they have like mm-hmm. uh, hoses even that you can take like a screwdriver and drill holes at different you know periodic lengths for depending on where your plants are at different uh side gauge holes depending on how much water flow you want to go and you can even like attach little drippers out of hoses so there's so much that you can do with beds and uh, growing outdoors or even indoor yeah i have a soaker hose out there actually um for my beds but it's my vegetable garden and it was just from i'm assuming just old uh <clears throat> the old root balls i have in there if you had enough water to sprout some seeds that were stuck in there somehow anyhow there's three of them and they were pretty close together growing pretty close together but the stalks were the plants were maybe a foot tall but the stalks were already bigger around than my thumb they're just huge vigorous looking plants i'm like fuck so i i had to get them out of there because it's my vegetable garden they'll be too big and shade you know shade everything out so I just got a little hand shovel and I got underneath deep underneath it and popped it up and just kind of popped them out of there and just try to shake a lot of the roots off. And they're all intertwined with each other. I just kind of gently, I did have to rip some, but I gently ripped them apart. These two plants and put them in their own pots and just st- stuck them uh, on my porch for right now. I had to take them out of the sun because not even an hour in the sun and they were droopy and shitty. So I watered the fuck out of them and then I just put them in the shade and they look way better now. But I'm just interested to see what the fuck. It's probably, probably some. I mean, it could be from my breeding project with Bliss Bud, but it, um, it's probably. I'm thinking like some of those seeds from the gnarly barley, the hemp. So be it, hemp. So yeah. So for me, I can take that and process that into RSO and just have CBD. CBD. Yeah. So I'm. It's a win-win. See, see what it is. Yeah. And that, I, I mean, it's, it's... got to be a female first. We got to figure that out. But that's true. That'd be a loose, a big loose, a male hemp plant. <laughs> Uh, but if it was your bliss, that'd be cool. That's also possible because I've seen, especially if you get a nice early pollination, um, the mature seed sometimes will just drop right out of the plant. I've even had them drop from the mother plant into its own pot and then sprout up and start growing in the like right next to its mom. Oh shit, that's cool. Yeah, I always just assume when I see the sprouts, I just always assume it's from the gnarly, bar- gnarly barley. But who knows? It could be from something like that definitely well spartan i know it's coming up to that time where uh we usually let you go and take care of the dogs and refill your water and your train all that stuff before the michigan bros grow show so if you have any final thoughts or shout outs you'd like to give uh, now would yeah, be the I time wanna, actually i want to shout out uh baked pone 710 dp and uh everything grows or anything anything grows i think it is they all came out today and we had a little smoke sesh and uh especially uh anything grows in big pollen tired my dogs out and they're still sitting here sleeping next to me so thank you so much for that that has been amazing <laughs> uh, besides that shout out to chat and uh, you had some good questions in chat which is always great it helps drive the show so continue continue with your questions we love that shit and uh shout out to everybody each and everyone on the panel man it's awesome hanging with you guys and just talk and grow it's fucking refreshing with no uh there's no like I don't know. There's no business behind it. It's just people's opinions. It's just growers talking shop. And that's the shit I love. So I appreciate each and every one of you guys. Growers love. Uh, I'm going out to the Michigan Growers Grow Show. I'll see you guys there in about 15 minutes. Thanks, Peace guys. Peace out, Spartan. Peace and love, Spartan. The one thing I'll say, a tired dog is a good dog, in my experience. Once they get that exercise, it uh, tends to be well-behaved. If you're a dog owner out there and your dog's misbehaving, maybe uh, keep that in mind. But we got 15 minutes left, roughly, before we do our uh, final thoughts and shout-outs. And I'm curious, uh, Noah, do you have any thoughts that we 
didn't get to touch on tonight that maybe uh, experiences with some nutrients that you either liked or didn't like? No, not really. Um, you know, the one thing I was going to say is I, I have had some luck with um, like the rapid rooter things, the little plugs um, They you can get, obviously you can get the like Clonex gel. And when you're taking cuttings, you just dip it in there, but they also make like a solution and you can like, uh use that like i think i probably use like maybe anywhere from like just i just eyeball like five to like eight milliliters per gallon and then i'll just soak my their little rapid rooters in it um while i'm like basically i'll do that while i'm like uh you know taking the clones and stuff and then i tip it in the clonex and then i'll take one of those rapid rooters out and i'll just kind of squeeze a little bit out you don't want to put in there too wet and i've i have noticed a difference with that and you can also do the same thing in those aero cloners and i would say that i've noticed a little difference there too you can use it for both uh it, it i know guys that do the water only too so it's just kind of like you know your own personal preference i know all about the permacolors there's like a lot of stuff you can do with them you can like basically like cook them like in the oven at like really low temperatures like 160 for like five ten minutes to sterilize them they have a lot of really cool stuff they're about two dollars a piece and my cloner is kind of old. So I'm like, shoot, do I, it's a 24 site. Do I want to invest, you know, if it's like probably like close to 60 bucks for shipping and then the, something happens, the pump goes out, but I'm not going to lie. I, those seem very, if you had a nice new cloner and you were having some problems with those uh, collars getting a little porous and dirty, like you were saying, which is absolutely a thing, then I would think that that's probably a pretty good investment. So yeah, I'll say that. That's a good feedback. I definitely appreciate that. I've seen people uh, use that Clonex solution to soak the rapid rooters or root rights, like you were just saying, and have great results with that and also use it in the, you know, various types of cloners. I wonder what it is, some sort of hormone or if there's some sort of nutrient, like one of my hydro shop guys recommended some sort of solution to me with like the heavy 16 stuff that it was just like a cocktail. And I did it a couple of times and it actually worked well, but it was just like, I felt like, you know, I'm just dumping more nutrients that, if I didn't have to use them, I didn't want to use them. But at the same time, if you're getting better results, then I think it is warranted. But like Doc and I think others maybe have mentioned, I don't even know that the plant is able to take up nutrient before it's got roots shot. So um, at Not least for really the first. The but first... yeah, the rooting hormones that are in there will help sort of generate roots um so it's not really about feeding the plant. yeah like a liquid maybe like an iaa or something like that i think it's endobutyl something acid or something uh whatever yeah, clonex it, is exactly they won't tell us much but um yeah i think that that's that's certainly the active pathway the fun little uh experiment that they ran i wish they would have used aloe as well um over at the university of guelph in the same paper that they did the drought stress study it was like a four different research papers all kind of cooked into one publication um, one of them was examining different methodologies of cloning and they scored like the roots is like a zero like no roots one is like uh, some roots are showing and then two was like very strong roots and i think they used like willow water because i believe willow is known to have salicylic acid salicylic okay yeah so that was um Unfortunately, like not as effective as some of the other ones. I wish I would have, like I said, tried aloe or um, some other things, maybe even like coconut water or something. Um, but yeah, they found that the, I believe uh, IAA is what I think it was called or IBA, indobutyl something acid. <laughs> I can't pronounce it. Indo. Uh, I think it's IBA. 
but I, yeah. I could be mis- I'm forgetting off the top of my head too. But yeah. whatever you could find it if you look hard enough on the internet. Um, it's basically whatever all of the cloning gels are from the uh, the main ingredient. But I think they just make it into a gel form because they could probably make it into a liquid liquid form, like we've seen. They have those solutions that you dump into the cloner or so powder form. Oh yeah, powder form. Um, Spartan has mentioned that he gets he got a jar of the powder years ago and he's been using it ever since just from like a garden center for like seven or eight bucks. And I know the clone X is not cheap. So I would actually recommend that powder. Um, So thank you for bringing that up. Um, If you look up just cloning powder for gardening, um, it's really cheap. It comes in like a pill bottle, almost size thing. And if Spartan has said, he said great effect with that. So uh, might be worth looking into. I think clone X is like 30, 40, probably like 60 bucks now with all the uh, shortages on everything. But yeah, those uh, products that they sell at the hydro stores tend to not be inexpensive. So as the cheap home grow, I love uh, trying to save the people out there a little bit of money where we can, because that's what this is all about, right? At the end of the day. And that's why I started off with, man, if you, if you got it working and it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if you're doing it and you're doing it with just water, I've, I've done it with just water lots of times. But uh, hey, you know, I know guys that are running into some troubles and I showed them a couple of things. And, uh, they did that. I, I know another good buddy of mine. Uh, he swears by this uh, product called uh, Liquid Karma through Botanicare. He puts like a cap full in like a bowl, swishes it around, then soaks those rapid rooters in that. And I've seen him have big, healthy freaking roots in there, like seven days later, popping out of them, you know, big ones, long ones. So, hey, whatever you're using, if it's working, don't fix it, man. Two more things I just thought about. Um, there's a message. Okay, yeah, go ahead. I, I wrote them down, so I won't forget. Oh, well, you asked for the little subjects that people had to, to add. It was within that yeah, context. Yeah. Go, go for it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So basically, um, here. Because we brought it up, and I had brought it up on, on uh, Instagram, but uh, there's this, this idea that I kind of mentioned earlier that uh, the microbes we we add to the soil, like a lot of people like to use them. A lot of people like to use, for example, these uh, plant growth promoting rhizobacteria is pretty popular. Um, You know, I just want to just echo the sentiment that whether you collect them from the environment and then cultivate them or influence their development in your own sort of ecosystem, like in a garden or cultivation space, or you get them from a group or an organization that makes them, you know, those microbes, when we use them, they can sometimes escape <laughs> our environment or through things like horizontal gene transfer and that kind of stuff. Those, those things that make them resistant to the environment or even susceptible to certain things or able to infect other organisms, those genes can also move between individuals in a biofilm and things like that. So my ultimate point in a very short period of time is, um, you know, just consider just being careful when you apply, maybe don't over apply things and don't just assume that because it's natural or because you got it from the environment um, that you cannot like have a potentially antagonistic or negative effect, not only with your own microbes in your already existing environment, but also elsewhere. Um, You know, there are examples here of, of people who can or who have seen this sort of stuff. And if you want to learn more from this paper, a uh, new phytologist recently came out. Uh, this is actually, a, this is not a paper, but it's a, um, it's like an editorial about uh, various papers in the journal. 
and uh, this is the title. And uh, yeah, it's just an interesting concept. I think it doesn't get a whole lot of um, a talk. So yeah, on that uh, on that subject, I thought people should know. Yeah, it might not always be beneficial. And even if it is for one plant, it might be harmful to the greater environment. So be careful with the application and know the greater implications um, for sure. The one the thing I wanted to add to that is uh, Canada, for example, regulates very heavily microbes. Like a lot of them can't get recharge or a number of microbial products that are available in the United States can't be shipped across the border because they don't want some microbes to become <laughs> available and used on their land that can potentially cause harmful effects um, to, you know, their agriculture or even just the, you know, the surrounding area. It's just like with California, there's, if you come in, the thing that they're probably most strictly looking for is agricultural things coming in. They don't want pests. Like Matthew is an IPM uh, expert and he, he has a job here in California for a reason. There's so much uh, of it is fighting off the pests. And that starts at the border. They don't want people bringing in truckloads of different fruits or vegetables from different states or countries and uh, potentially bringing a pest that wasn't here before that is invasive and causing havoc. So that is a very great consideration. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Something else for cloning to add to that topic. When Noah was talking earlier, I kind of recalled this was some people will go to the extent of using like a sterile blade. I've seen people get like a new like barber blade every single time. Uh, you can get like a 50 pack of those little razors real cheap and they're sterile. You could like soak them in alcohol or bleach or whatever you need to do and then rinse it in like hot water. Um, but then the final cloning method that I forgot to mention was air layering with those root riots or um, rapid rooters. If you cut one of those in half and then you wrap it around the stem of a plant and then you take like a grafting tape or saran wrap or anything, you could even just take whatever tape and wrap it around there. Um, the first few, the reason that they're good would be that you could see when the roots sprout, but the plant will literally start to grow roots because it thinks that it's been buried and you can cut that off and you have a pretty much guaranteed clone because you just don't cut it until you see roots and you water that, uh, rapid rooter right. If I hadn't mentioned that already before you wrap it. So I've seen a lot of people doing that with success. And as far as like plant counts are going, it isn't a new plant until you actually cut it off of the plant that it's on. So for timing things, it can kind of give you a little bit of a flexibility there and ensure that you're pretty much guaranteed to clone if you can see that it's rooted on the plant before you have, even have to cut it off. So a cool technique that, again, I think was like adapted from tree growing and other things like that, but has been used in cannabis now successfully. And uh, you can even wrap like a ball of soil if you were wanting to get down like that. And people will even, there's little devices uh, farmers have that make their own little, basically rapid rooters out of soil, little soil block creators. So uh, you could be crafty with your growing methods and um, related to the medium. There's a lot of choices and a lot of options. And I'm really glad that we had such a open discussion and dialogue tonight. Again, it wasn't about what's best and what's worst. It was kind of just discussing what's available and how we like using it and what our experience has been with it. I think we did a great job of that and love these kind of conversations. So thank you all for coming tonight. Best first to Dr. MJ. Hey guys. Yeah. I love media conversation. So this was, this was a lot of fun today. Um, I want to let everybody know about the grower love giveaway we're doing this week. So we have uh Viper Spectra KS 5,000 up for grabs on Tuesday night. And all you gotta do is sign up to win. So, um, and you get bonus options this week for following Jack Greenstock and for following cheap home grow. 
Um, so check out the deals and discounts page on Cocoa for Cannabis. Sign up for that. That's a, an awesome light for a four by four grow tent. And we're giving it away on Tuesday, last day of the month. Um, and then we'll have another grower love giveaway lined up for next month. Um, I'm Dr. MJ Coco running Cocoa for Cannabis and enjoy coming here every week to talk to all you guys. So you can find me on YouTube, Dr. MJ Coco on Instagram but especially on CocoForCannabis.com. And I'll be back next week. Grow love. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, panel. And thanks, chat. Thank you. And thanks to all the new followers that I've been receiving from the Grow Love giveaway. It's always cool to see new faces. I always appreciate having, I follow back all growers. So if you grow cannabis, I'll follow you. And chances are, if you're on Cocoa for Cannabis, you're already growing. So it's a you know great little uh, way for us to get to meet new people. And, yeah, uh, keep growing the community, growing so. love, you know, growing the grower love, spreading the grower love and, and helping everybody connect on on the spirit of collaboration. So happy to happy to do that. I really like that little giveaway thing that lets us give you those bonus options away for following you guys and other people. It's a lot of fun. It's a rising tide that raises all ships. And with that said, Noah, the grower. Yeah, I had a lot of fun today, too. Um, I will uh, I'll shout out. uh Kyle, uh, he always says, you know, I'm glad that we get to still do this. I'm glad that we get to still do this. I wish that when I was coming up, I had so many different questions. Heck, I remember the first time that I had spider mites. I didn't even know what it was it's like 12 years ago. I call my buddy up and I'm like, hey, I think I got spider mites. I mean, a powdery mildew. He showed up and he's like, oh, no, man, that's spider mites. I'm burning my clothes when I leave your house, he said. But uh, so I'm just glad that we got a place that, you know, growers can come to. I learn a lot from everybody here and I hope people are listening or learning. So, uh, yeah, I'm Noah the Grow with two E's on Instagram. You can find me there and I'll see everybody next week. Uh, not to blow smoke up our own butts, but I will say from all the lovely messages from the chatters and uh, people who listen uh, weekly, we've taught a lot of people a lot and they really appreciate all that we've, we've shared. And that's why we continue to do this. And we all continue to grow uh, ourselves uh, as people and, and growers and, I think it's a great community that we're building here and I'm happy to be a small part of it. And with that said, next up, Matthew. Yeah, I really did enjoy the conversations and just echo what Spartan and other people have said. There's some really good uh, questions in the chat as well. Um, so to keep it quick, if you are interested in that presentation I was talking about, that will be on the FCP02 channel with Chad Westport, who is actually also in the chat as well. Um, so I don't know if I'll do it this week or possibly next week, but I'm pretty much done at this point. Uh, but I do want to make sure I get every detail, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. You can also find other information about various pests and their interactions with plants as well as some beneficial organism um, information as well on my Xenthanol YouTube channel. Also, you can, for professional inquiries, contact me at xenthanol.com. And you can also find me on my personal accounts on Twitter and Instagram, which is at SyncAngel. Thank you so much for joining us. And last and certainly not least, the American one. Jack, as always, thanks for the hosting capabilities you always possess for us. And uh, I'll say I was pretty laid back, but I want to add uh, for this and the cloning thing, um, especially in today's age with all these dirty people making dirty clones, um, I would say be careful of where you get your clones from. And even in-house, in your own place, uh, I buy scalpels and I cut them underwater before I stick them. But scalpels are, aren't very expensive and uh yeah that's my two cents on that and definitely i reiterate no the, the grower if you if you get a cloning method that works 
don't mess with it. Just keep doing it exactly how you're doing it. Cause, but also be aware that the environment changes. So sometimes exactly what you're doing will not be, you know, conducive to that maneuver. So like in the winter when it gets totally dry out and the whole summer, you never had a dome, you know, think about that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Peace to everyone. Have a blessed weekend. Thanks to the vets. And um, yeah, good to be here. And hopefully we'll all be here next week. Peace. Here's to that. And I want to reiterate what Tao just said with the cloning uh, seasonally. Another final tip before we go. If it does get hot in the summer with the little uh, deep water culture style cloners like the oxycloner, if it's getting too hot and your plants aren't rooting well, you could take a water bottle, throw it in the freezer or in the refrigerator, get it cooler, and then drop that into your reservoir. And that'll help keep the temperatures down for you and help prevent some of the uh, nastier stuff that starts to grow in the warmer temperatures and prevents uh, your plants from rooting as quickly as they would in different times of the year. And like Tao said, uh, if you need to throw a dome on there to keep the humidity in the right range, that's a great tip. So thank you again, Tao, for joining. Uh, and I guess last, I'm Jack Greenstock. You can find me on Instagram or Jack underscore Greenstock. Uh, also on Instagram, that's my backup account, but it's Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And then I've got 50strains.com. Thank you to all who've uh, gotten a book. I actually had a local delivery uh, recently where one of the listeners lived in I saw the address and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to ship this. I'm just going to go drop it off and got to meet them in person. So that was a cool little interaction. Shout out to you if you're listening. I appreciate that. And um, I can't think of uh, my final thoughts. I thought I had one more thing, but with that being said, thank you to all who listen uh, after the show. We've got a few hundred who come to the live and then a couple thousand on between the YouTube and the podcast listeners. So we really appreciate the uh, dedicated following and seeing you all each week. And I look forward to catching you next week. This is Jack Greenstock signing out. Till next time. Grow or love, everyone.